Good morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Dave. I am not the pastor here. That would be Jay. Uh, But Jay and Mandy, Caleb and Ethan, they are away today on a well-earned and much-needed vacation in the Poconos. Uh, They've been on vacation since last Sunday. Uh, They would have been back yesterday, but the owner of the cabin where they're staying offered them a free day. So uh, they are staying over one more day and and will be coming back today. So Jay has entrusted me with this morning's message, and I want to thank him for that, in case he's uh, listening on the podcast later. (laughs) So... We are, this morning we are continuing in our summer series called Selah. Now there has been some debate about the meaning of the word Selah, but the most commonly accepted meaning of it means to pause and reflect. And it's a word that appears throughout the Psalms. In fact, it appears 71 times in the Psalms. There are only three other places where it appears in Scripture, and all three of those occurrences are in the third chapter of Habakkuk, or Habakkuk, as some people call it. But 71 times it, it occurs in the Psalms, and it mean, at the moment that it occurs, it means to pause and reflect. Now, it's similar, it's similar to a rest in today's standard music notation. It, it's a time when the people would pause and they would reflect about what God about what God is like, who he is, what he's like, and, and it's to create margin in our lives and in our hearts to hear from God and what he wants to teach us. Now, this is the third summer in a row that we've done this series in August. We kind of take a break from our usual studies and we pause and reflect on who God is and what he's like and what he's done for us. So this morning... I want to talk a little bit about, about man's chief end and what it means to glorify God. Now, the shorter Westminster Catechism, the first question and answer of that catechism asks the question, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now, as I shared a couple of weeks ago, One of my favorite theologians and authors is John Piper. Now, Piper takes that and he tweaks it ever so slightly. He says, man's chief end is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. In fact, the motto of Piper's ministry, Desiring God's Ministry, says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. So whenever we, when we achieve our ultimate satisfaction, our ultimate enjoyment in life, when that comes from God and from him alone, then God is glorified in and through us. And one of the ways that we, glorif- that we enjoy God and thus glorify him is by enjoying his works. Now, I want to issue a little word of caution here because it is entirely possible to enjoy the works of the Lord without necessarily glorifying God. Because if we are enjoying the works of the Lord strictly because of what they do for us and for the benefits that we get from them, whether it be our material provisions, you know, our food, our clothing, our shelter, or even our spiritual blessings like our salvation, if we are enjoying his works only for those benefits, God is not glorified. Because if we, now does this mean that we're not supposed to enjoy the benefits of God's works? Not at all. In fact, in Psalm 103, verse 2, David said, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and what? Forget not all his benefits. So we are to enjoy the benefits of his works and his blessings. But if we are enjoying his works strictly, for the benefits because of what they do for us, then we are not glorifying God. We are merely gratifying ourselves. 
we are putting self and not God at the center of the universe. And I know I have harped on this before, but that is one of the biggest problems, the number one problem that I have with this so-called prosperity gospel and the snake oil salesmen who peddle that nonsense. Because what they are basically doing is treating God as though he exists exclusively for our benefit. God does not exist for our benefit. We exist for his glory. But if we are enjoying the works of the Lord, not only for the benefits that we get from them, but because of what they reveal to us about God, his attributes and his character, and because they cause us to grow in our understanding of him and in our love for him and in our worship of him, then God is glorified. That is what the psalmist calls us to in Psalm 111. How do we do it? He shows us that as well. So if you have a Bible this morning, turn in it to Psalm 111. And if you don't have your Bible with you, you can just lean forward somewhere between 45 and 60 degrees, depending on how long your arms are, and pull out the one underneath the chair in front of you and turn to page 423. That's 423 in the Pew Bible, Psalm 111. And while you're turning there, I want to give you a little bit of background uh, on the psalm. In this psalm, the psalmist vowed to praise the Lord in the assembly for his great and marvelous works of redemption that lead people to fear him. Now, Psalm 111 is similar to Psalm 112 in its structure and message. Psalm 111 praises the righteousness of the Lord, and Psalm 112 extols the blessings of a person who comes to fear the Lord. Both psalms draw on expressions that appear elsewhere in the psalms and also in Proverbs, and both are alphabetical songs or acrostics, each one consisting of 22 lines, with each line beginning with the success, a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And this was a common uh, literary tool that was often used in scripture, especially in the poetic works and in the psalms. And although the author of the psalm is anonymous, uh, some ancient manuscripts suggest that the, that the psalm, Psalm 111, was written sometime during the time of Haggai and Zechariah. Um, they were two of the last, of, along with Malachi, they were, two of the, they were some of the last of the Old Testament prophets. So their time was probably somewhere you know, around 400 B.C., maybe even a little bit before. So if, you have, if, if you're there in your Bible to Psalm 111, let's go ahead and read it together. Praise the Lord. I will extol the Lord with all my heart in the council of the upright, and in the assembly. Great are the works of the Lord. They are pondered by all who delight in them. Glorious and majestic are his deeds, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wonders to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works, giving them the lands of other nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever, and acted in faithfulness and uprightness. He provided redemption for his people. He ordained his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who follow his precepts have good understanding. To him belongs eternal praise. So the psalmist begins with a praise in the assembly by expressing his delight in God's works. Now, we're not going to go verse by verse, blow by blow through the psalm, but I want you to take note of what he says in verse 2. He says, great are the works of the Lord. Now, great is one of those words that is probably greatly overused in today's culture. You know, if we think of a great work of art, you know, whether it's a, a, a song or a book or even a movie, you know, we might say, you know, that's a great song. That's a great movie. If you've just had a delicious meal at your favorite restaurant, you might say, wow, that was a really great meal. And 
A lot of times today we think of great athletes. Uh, some names that immediately come to mind would be like LeBron James because of all the big stats that he puts up and the NBA titles that he's won. Or how about Michael Phelps? 28 me Olympic medals, 23 of them gold medals. Or how about Simone Biles? First American woman gymnast to win four gold medals in a single Olympics. Throw in the bronze that she won in the uh, balance beam. How would you like to uh, be one of those two coming back into the country through customs? You, you, you have anything to declare? Yeah, just a few souvenirs. But what is it that makes someone or something great? Now, here at Cultivate, we sometimes dialogue with each other. So I want to get some feedback from you. When you think of something or someone as being great, what makes it what makes them or what makes it great? Someone said God. Okay. But what kind of a quality are we looking for when we think of greatness? Someone who's accomplished in their field, yes. What else? Yes, Corey. <laughs> I'm sorry, I missed that. <laughs> oh, Marie says anybody who helps her. Yes, Corey. Okay, yeah, something that stands apart from, from everything else. You know, more than just average or mediocre. Yes, James. Okay, outstanding and extraordinary. Memorable, yes. Okay, now whatever the psalmist meant when he said that when he was talking about the works of the Lord, what we do know is he says that the works of the Lord are great. Now, I was looking through Merriam-Webster's definition of the word great, and let me ask you, which one of these do you think might apply to the works of the Lord? Large in number or measure or numerous? Uh, yeah, it could. I mean, the works of the Lord are definitely numerous, although I'm not sure this is quite what the author had in mind when he wrote this. But how about this one? Remarkable in magnitude, degree, or effectiveness. Yeah, that one would definitely fit. Eminent, distinguished, chief, or preeminent over others. Definitely. Markedly superior in character or quality. Yeah, I think all of these would definitely apply to the works of the Lord. But whichever one the author had in mind, he goes on to say that they are pondered by all who delight in them. Those who delight in the works of the Lord ponder those works. Now, let me ask you another question. When you ponder the works of the Lord, what do you usually think of? What normally comes to mind? Miracles, okay. Give an example. Okay, those are, those are definitely good ones. Aaron says creation. Who would agree with that? Give an example. Sure, of creation. Some, his creation of the entire universe out of nothing. What about the things that he has created? We all, I think, I think for most of us, that's probably where our mind tends to go. When we think of the works of the Lord, we tend to look at the things that he, that he has created. And there is certainly valuable in, value in that. In fact, you know, we can definitely enjoy God and thus glorify him by enjoying his works of creation. Matter of fact, Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. So we see that in the Psalms. Jesus often alluded to, to things in creation, to nature in his teachings. I know in the Sermon on the Mount, when he told people not to be anxious about anything, he said, consider the birds of the, of the air. You know, they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? 
He said, consider the lilies of the field. They neither toil nor spin, and yet not even Solomon in all of his glory was clothed like one of these. So he was... And then even Paul in Romans 1 says that since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what? From the things that have been made. The, the 18th century pastor and theologian, Jonathan Edwards, was interested in natural history and often used you know, works of nature as illustrations in his sermon. And even as a child, from the time that he was a child, Edwards had a fascination with spiders. And when he was an 11-year-old boy, he even wrote an essay about spiders. He later edited the work to match the burgeoning scientific literature of his, of his era. And even after he had graduated from, from school and was studying theology, he still continued to be interested in natural history. Now, unlike a lot of the European scientists and American theologians of his day who found the implications of science drawing them more toward deism, Edwards actually went in the opposite direction. He saw, he saw the natural world as evidence of God's masterful design. And throughout his life, he would often go into the woods as a favorite place to pray and worship God in the beauty and solace of nature. Now, I have to admit, this was the direction that I was originally headed in this morning when I started to prepare uh, this morning's message. Now, let me ask you this. How many of you use a GPS, some form of a GPS system when you travel or if you're going someplace that you're not familiar with? Now... This might be a little bit more embarrassing, but I want you to be honest. How many of you, in spite of your GPS, still make a wrong turn from time to time? Okay. Doesn't mean you get lost, but maybe you do a little bit of sightseeing. Now, have you ever noticed that most of those systems seem to have a feminine voice? I'm not... I'm not sure why that is. Now, I do have some theories about it, but I'm smart enough not to share any of them publicly. <laughs> but a lot of times, if you make a wrong turn, you'll hear something along the lines of recalculating. <laughs> well, I mention this by way of analogy because, as I said, when I first started preparing this morning's message, I was thinking more along the lines of God's works in creation. In fact, I had this wonderful meditation prepared about all of God's works in creation. But then as I started to delve further into the psalm, it came to my attention that the psalmist was not alluding to God's creative works. He was alluding to his redemptive works, his works of providence in behalf of his people. In other words, I made a wrong turn. So... I had to recalculate. Because the psalmist, is what he's doing is looking back over Israel's history at that time to all of God's marvelous works. And he names many of the works that God's saints enjoy. First, he says that God caused, has caused his wonders to be remembered. Now, he did this by prescribing numerous festivals into, their, into Israel's calendar to commemorate God's work in their history. There was Passover, which was a memorial festival. It was celebrated in the home where each family ate a Passover meal symbolizing their solidarity with the Exodus generation on the night that God struck the Egyptians and passed over the Jewish homes. There was the Feast of Unleavened Bread, a week-long feast that immediately followed the Passover, was marked by sacrifices during which the people ate bread and made, made without yeast as a reminder of their forefathers' hasty departure from Egypt. There was the Day of Atonement, also known as Yom Kippur, 
And on this solemn day of fasting and prayer, the high priest entered the innermost room of the sanctuary, the Holy of Holies, or the holiest place, and he made sacrifice to, made a sacrifice to atone for all the sins of the people of Israel. And then five days after the Day of Atonement, they would have the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. Now, during this time, the people of Israel would live outside in shelters or booths made of branches. No work was done during this time, and the family would just relive the days of ancient Israel's travel through the wilderness. Now, we have holidays in our own calendar to commemorate things that we want to remember as well. Some examples, we have Memorial Day, where we remember our fallen heroes who have died in service to their country. Now, Pete was sharing with me that over in Great Britain, they have Remembrance Day, which is similar to our Memorial Day, only it's held in November. We also have Independence Day, 4th of July, where we celebrate the birth of our nation and our independence from Great Britain. Now, Pete has also shared with me that they don't have that in Great Britain. (laughs) And then we have Veterans Day, where we honor not only those who have fallen in service to their country, but to all of our veterans who have served their country, even, even those who did not necessarily die in war. So... The psalmist says that God has called his wondrous works to be remembered, and then he gives some examples of those works. He said, in verse 5, he said he provides food for those who fear him. As the people were wandering in the wilderness during their years of wandering, God provided food. He provided quails, and he provided manna for them. Now, manna was a miraculous food that God provided during the years of wilderness wandering. It was... It originally appeared in the form of thin seed-like, seed-like flakes on the ground around the Israelite camp. And it's said to have had the taste of honey or even of cakes made with wheat. So maybe think of graham crackers with sesame seeds, and you, may, and you get the picture. Uh, it was also called the grain of heaven, the bread of heaven, and even the bread of angels. And by giving this provision, God... God demonstrated his daily care for his people, and he proved that he was continually with them. Now, the manna was was to be gathered daily. You were not supposed to gather two days' worth at a time except on the day before the Sabbath because the Sabbath was the only day that they couldn't gather. And it also symbolized man's need for constant dependence on the Lord. Now, Jesus drew on the rich symbolism of manna by pointing to himself as the true manna, the bread of heaven, which when eaten would nourish man's spiritual life unto everlasting life. Now in verse 6, the psalmist says that God gave them the lands of other nations. He's shown his people the power of his works, giving them the lands of other nations. This probably is an allusion to the conquest of Canaan. Now, if you want to read some exciting stuff, read the book of Joshua, at least the first half of it. The first half of the book lays out, you know, chronicles their conquest of the promised land. You know, when God had called Abraham, he made a covenant with Abraham, and part of, in part of that covenant, he made a promise that he would give that land to Abraham and his descendants. God fulfilled that promise by enabling the people of Israel to overcome the nations of Canaan that were mightier and more numerous than they were. And as I said, you really want to read some exciting stuff. Read the first half of the book of Joshua that chronicles how that happened. Now, the second half of the book, he's basically describing all the tribal boundaries and and the boundaries of the land and all of that. You know, if you... If you're a map maker, you know, you may find that of a little, little bit more interest. But in the first half of the book, you know, there's, there are three major examples of God's power at work. The first one was when they crossed over the Jordan. You know, as they were crossing over the Jordan, in order for the people to cross over, the, the, the Lord had told Joshua 
that the priests were to carry the Ark of the Covenant. And as soon as the feet of the priests entered the water, the waters of the Jordan dried up and the people crossed over the dry riverbed on dry ground. Now, at most times of the year, the Jordan is little or nothing more than a small narrow stream, except when it is in flood stage. Now, as I've shared with some of you, one of my hobbies, one of my favorite pastimes is going fishing, specifically fly fishing for trout. And fortunately, we live in close proximity to some blue ribbon trout streams in eastern Pennsylvania. And having fished some of those streams, many of which, like the Jordan, are small, narrow streams, and having fished some of those after a heavy rain, I can tell you right now, you would not want to try and wade across one of them after a heavy rain because it's twice as wide, twice as deep, and flowing twice as fast as it normally is. And if you try to cross one after it's blown out, you're going to be blown away. And if the people had tried to cross the Jordan while it was in flood stage, they would have been blown away. Now, even when it is in flood stage, there are times when landslides upriver can dam up the river and cause the water to stop flowing. And I know there have been some skeptics who have said that this is what happened in the time of Joshua, and that is entirely possible, but it still is a miracle, a miraculous event. There is still a supernatural element to it because of four things. First of all, God had told Joshua that it was going to happen. The second thing, as soon as the feet of the priests stepped into the water, guess what? It happened. And the third thing was the amount of water that was held back, the text says, in a heap for the better part of a day. And then the fourth thing, after the people had crossed over, as soon as the feet of the priests had left the riverbed on the other side, the waters returned. So even God, even if it had been caused by a landslide upstream, God is the one who caused the landslide at just the right time. The second thing that displayed God's power in the conquest of Canaan was the fall of Jericho. Now, if you've ever read that, it seems kind of strange because Joshua was instructed to lead his army on a silent circuit of Jericho one time around each day for six consecutive days. And then on the seventh day, they were to march around it seven times. And then when a signal was given, they were to shout and the walls would fall. And when they shouted, those walls fell. Now, the walls of Jericho were quite an engineering feat. They were basically a double redoubt with, the, with an outer retaining wall about 12 feet high and 6 feet thick at the base. And then it was backfilled with earth and stone sloping upward at about 35 degrees until it encountered the, inner, the massive inner wall, which stood as high as 40 feet and was about 12 feet thick at the base. So this would have made a direct assault on the city nearly impossible, and a protracted siege would have given the neighboring Canaanite nations time to mobilize and attack the Israelite army. So a quick victory at Jericho was absolutely critical to the conquest of Canaan, and God's intervention, which caused the walls to collapse, made that victory possible. So we see, and then the third event that took place where we see God's power at work, was in a battle that took place against the, the Amorites. Joshua prayed that the sun would stand still so that the Amorites could be exterminated. God answered Joshua's prayer, and the daylight was extended for a full day. Now, this took place after an all-night march. So you can imagine those guys were pretty tired at the end of a, literally a long day. Now, again, some have dismissed this as literary hyperbole, but you know, conservative scholars have always held to a historic intervention by God. And there, have been, there has been some debate on what the text has actually described. 
Some have suggested that an eclipse divided the normal day and thus seemed to double it. Others believe that the day was prolonged by a miraculous suspension of the rotation of the Earth on its axis, and some have suggested that a comet flew near the Earth, slowing its rotation and shedding unexpected light. But you know, how God actually did it is irrelevant. What is relevant is that he did it. And he did it not only to show his power over his creation, because God was not trying to impress anybody, but he did it because of his own personal involvement with his people. And that is what, that is what the text is emphasizing, and that is what the psalmist is remembering. And then the third thing that the psalmist points back to in Israel's history, in verse 9 he says, he provided redemption for his people. And this probably is a reference to the deliverance from Egypt. Because the Exodus is considered to be the central event of the Old Testament. God had heard the cry of his people. He saw their affliction. He remembered his covenant that he had made with Abraham, with Isaac and Jacob. And he came down and he rescued them from their bondage in Egypt after they had been enslaved for more than 400 years. And in Exodus 6, it says he redeemed them with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Now, this demonstrated not only God's power, but it demonstrated his faithfulness and his concern for his people. So looking back through all of Israel's history, this caused the psalmist to praise the awesome Lord. And it's a lesson for us even today because the Lord's work should lead us to fear him. And I'm not talking about fear in the sense of us being afraid of God or fear in the sense of some kind of emotional foreboding or dread over impending distress or misfortune, but I'm talking about fear in the sense of holding God in deep reverential awe. This deep reverential awe should lead us into worship and cause us to praise the Lord in the same way that the psalmist does. Because notice how, he, notice how he closes out. He closes out the psalm basically the same way that he opens it, in praise to the Lord. He opens by saying, praise the Lord, and he closes by saying, to him belongs eternal praise. Now, the psalmist was looking back over Israel's history up to that time. But now let's fast forward about 2,500 years. We have a lot more history to look back on than the psalmist did. We have many more works of the Lord that we can look back to. And what should our response be when we, when we look back on them? Well, that's what leads us to our big idea. Remembering the awesome works of the Lord on our behalf should lead us to worship him. This is just a logical progression because when we, rem- when we remember what God does, it reminds us of who he is. And being reminded of who he is leads us to worship him. Now, just as the people of Israel have their festivals and their holidays in their calendar to commemorate God's work in their history, we also have holidays in our calendar to commemorate Christ's work in our behalf. We have Christmas. Now, what do we celebrate when we think of Christmas? The birth of Christ. But I want, to, I want you to stop and think just for a moment about the magnitude of that and what all that entails you know, with Christ's incarnation. Because John says that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Here you have the king of the universe, the king of glory and the creator of the universe, stepping down from his throne, leaving his father's side in the splendor of heaven to come to earth and, be, and become one of us. That would be akin to one of us leaving our, the comforts of our home and our family to become an earthworm, to live in the dirt and crawl in the muck. 
How many of you would want to become an earthworm and do that? No takers? <laughs> I, I know I've been called a maggot before. Matter of fact, one of my fishing buddies calls me that all the time. But you know what? The distance between Christ and me is even far greater than the distance between me and a maggot. When we think of what Christ did, we have a tendency to think of him humbling himself in his incarnation. But he did more than just humble himself. As Paul points out in Philippians 2, he emptied himself. He divested himself of the privileges of deity to take on human flesh with all of its weaknesses and all of its frailties. He experienced hunger. He he experienced thirst. Remember when he was on the cross, he said, I thirst. He became weary. He experienced human emotions. When he was at the tomb of Lazarus, it says that Jesus wept. And he was tempted in every way that we are, as the writer of Hebrews says, yet was without sin. He assumed humanity in order to redeem humanity from the curse of sin. Another holiday that we celebrate as Christians is Good Friday. And what do we commemorate on Good Friday? The death of Christ. Because in his death, Christ took our sins onto himself. 1 Peter 2 says that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. And in taking our sins to himself, he took God's punishment for our sins. Isaiah 53.5 says he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. And he did this in order to reconcile us to God. As it says in Romans 5.10, while we were enemies with God, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Now, how many of you have seen the new Ben-Hur movie that just opened on Friday? I haven't seen it yet, but I'm kind of curious about it. Is it any good? Laura, Laura gives it two thumbs up. I know most, if not all of us here, are probably familiar with the 1959 film with Charlton Heston, which was itself a remake of, a, of an old silent film from 1925. Both of the previous movie versions were based on a novel that was published in 1880 by General Lew Wallace. Now, both of the previous movie versions, as well as the novel, had a subtitle. You know, there was the main title, Ben-Hur, but then there was a subtitle. Does anyone remember what it was? I thought I heard someone whisper it. Yeah, the subtitle says, A Tale of the Christ by General Lew Wallace. Now, I've seen both of the previous movie versions, and I've read the book, and I thoroughly enjoyed them. In fact, the 1959 Charlton Heston film is one of my all-time favorites. But notwithstanding, there is one thing missing from Wallace's tale of the Christ that just bugs me to no end, a glaring omission that to me is just absolutely cringeworthy. Can anyone guess what it might be? There is definitely forgiveness, but that is not what I'm, that's not what I'm getting at. What I'm getting at is that in Wallace's tale of the Christ... Christ's part in the tale ends at the cross. Now, if Christ's part in the story ends at the cross, Houston, we have a problem. Because if his, if his part in the story ends, of, if his part in the story of redemption ends at the cross, there is no story of redemption because there is no redemption for there to be a story of. 
But thank God it didn't end there because after Good Friday, we have another holiday, and it's called Easter. Easter. And what do we commemorate on Easter? The resurrection of Christ. Hallelujah. Because if Christ was not raised from the dead, then as Paul wrote in Romans 15, no, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 15, we are of all men to be most pitied. Why? Because we are still dead in our sins. But Christ's resurrection is proof that his sacrifice was acceptable to God, and it is proof positive that he conquered sin because he overcame its penalty, which is death. He could not have overcome the penalty of sin. He could not have overcome death without also overcoming sin itself. The resurrection of Christ is absolutely crucial to the story of redemption, and it is critical to our salvation. And Christ After his resurrection, he ascended to the Father and he now lives at the right hand of God to make intercession on our behalf. That ought to make you tingle to think that Jesus Christ is at the right hand of the Father making intercession for you, for you, for you, for you, for me. So looking back in our own history... We have plenty of works of the Lord that, we, that we've enjoyed. But maybe, maybe we've enjoyed them only because of what they, what they do for us and the benefits that we gain from them. And if this is the case, then as I mentioned earlier, we're simply gratifying ourselves instead of glorifying God. And we need to correct this because we need to remember that God's works on our behalf are his gifts of grace. They're not something that we've earned and we have no right to them. So we need to let, we need to let his works remind us of what they reveal about him, his character and his attributes. Now this is equally true of his creative works as well as his redemptive works. For example, When you see a sunset or a starlit sky or maybe a mountain cathedral or a flower in the field or even a butterfly, what does that reveal to you about God? We also need to let his works cause us to grow in our understanding of him and in our love for him and in our worship of him. Now, how does this train us to be righteous? Well... The works of the Lord reveal God's righteousness and holiness. In verse 3 of the psalm, it says his righteousness endures forever. And in verse 9, it says holy and awesome is his name. Now, God has commanded us in Scripture to be holy because he is holy. There's only one problem with that, though. We don't have the ability in ourselves to become righteous before God and to become acceptable before him. But fortunately, God never commands us to do something without also giving us the means to do it. And as we, as we, as we learned in our study of Galatians a couple of months back, the only way that we can be reconciled to God and to become holy and righteous and acceptable before him is by placing our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ and in him alone. Then and only then are we united with him in his life, his death, and his resurrection. And we are then reconciled to the Father and we become holy and righteous before him. So... But sometimes we just need a little bit of reminder. Maybe like Jonathan Edwards, we need to find that special place of solitude that reminds us of God. You know, where we can go just to escape from all the busyness, get away from all the distractions, and just focus on him and 
Set our minds on the things that are above, as Paul writes, by meditating on Scripture, by communing with God through prayer, and by asking him to reveal himself to us. Now, Jesus gave us a great example of this. He often would go alone into the desert, sometimes even to a mountain, to be alone with the Father and to pray. And if we want to be more like him, shouldn't we follow his example? Maybe we need to come to our communion table with a little bit of a different attitude. You know, Jesus said, as often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. So when we take the elements, the bread and the juice, we need to remember his body that was broken for us. We need to think of the pierced hands and the feet, the crown of thorns that was pressed down on his head, his beaten his back that was beaten, the spear piercing his side. When we take the juice, we should think of the blood that dripped, even poured from the wounds. We think of someone who did absolutely nothing to deserve what he got. And yet, he took what we deserved so that we could get what we didn't deserve. In the same way, our prayers before meals can become meaningless if we don't mean if we don't mean them. You know, how quick are we to thank God for his provisions? I know there have been times when I've sat down to a meal and I've been so hungry, I just wanted to start eating without even without even saying thanks. You know, I I've never watched The Simpsons. Matter of fact, I can't stand The Simpsons. But there was an episode one time where Bart, you know, the little smart-alecky, foul-mouthed kid, was, a- was asked to say a blessing, you know, was asked to pray before a meal. And he said, God, since we, pray- since we paid for this food ourselves, thanks for nothing. Now, we might, we might recoil in shock at the irreverence of that. But how often... Is that really our attitude? You know, we've become so self-reliant that we tend to take things for granted and we do little more than pay lip service to God for what he's provided. The psalmist didn't do that. The psalmist said that he would praise God, he would thank God and give thanks with all of his heart We need to do the same thing. But sometimes we just need to be reminded. The things that I love and hold dear to my heart are just borrowed. They're not mine at all. Jesus, only let me use them to brighten my life. So remind me, remind me, dear Lord. Draw back the curtain of memory now and then. Show me where you brought me from and where I could have been. Remember I'm human and humans forget. So remind me, remind me, dear Lord. Nothing good have I done to deserve God's own Son. I'm not worthy of the scars in his hands. Yet he took the road to Calvary to die in my place. Why he loved me, I don't understand. Draw back the curtain 
of memory now and then. Show me where you brought me from and where I could have been. Remember, I'm human, and humans forget. So remind me, remind me, dear Lord. Let's pray. Gracious Father, first and foremost, I want to ask for your forgiveness in my own heart and life for the things that I, that I have taken for granted, for all the works you've done on my behalf. Lord, they are gifts of your grace. I know I don't deserve them, and I've often taken them for granted. I ask that you would forgive me. I ask, Lord, on behalf of all of us here this morning, that you would remind us of your works and show us, Lord, how they point to you, what they reveal about you, your character, your attributes, whether it be your power and your justice or even your grace and your mercy. And Lord, may they cause us to grow in our understanding of you. May they also cause us to grow in our love for you and in our worship for you. And we just pray, Lord, that you would be honored and glorified in our enjoyment of your works as as. They are ways that we enjoy you and thus glorify you because it's not about us. It is all about you. So we just want to honor you. We want to glorify you. And this we pray in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So now is the time in our service where we can respond to what God has said through us, uh, to us through the message. Um, and we do that in a few ways. Um, we're going to continue to worship through music. Um, we're also going to come up and have communion together. Um, if you're new, we do this in groups. And if you're looking for someone to do that with, you're welcome to join me or anyone else. Everyone here is pretty nice. So, um, And finally, um, we uh, will have the baskets come forward. Um, if you consider this your home, we just ask that you give cheerfully. Uh, if you're a guest here, please don't feel any obligation to give. Um, as I was listening to the message today and just thinking about like the works of God and how I've seen him work in my life, I um, really struggled hard with depression and anxiety in college. And at this point, this was over six years ago, and I find myself still trying to define myself by that, still thinking I'm somebody that's enslaved to that. And I look back and I see the work that God has done in me, freeing me from fear, freeing me from perfection, and that like need to be that way. And um, today I just want to say thank you to God for doing that. He's glorified in that, and he offers all of us that kind of freedom He's doing that kind of work in our life. It's not just in the mountains, it's in here. It's in the people around us, and he wants to do that in you today. Um, So let's pray.